You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you have a Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We'll be in verses 10 through 13 this morning. We'll also be in several other verses. Uh, But we'll kind of come back to this today, and then also we'll be in this section uh, next week. As you're turning there, my name's Jamin. If you're new, welcome to Citizens Church. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're thrilled, uh, we're thrilled to have you. I'm going to jump right in to verse 10, Ecclesiastes 3. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. And listen to this. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. Would you do something with me? We've never uh, started a sermon like this. And if you don't participate, this will be really awkward for me. But uh, I trust you. I just want to say a prayer out loud together. Um, And would you do this while we pray? Would you just hold out your hands in front of you? And then just repeat after me. God, life is a gift. You are the giver. Thank you. Amen. You did it. That was really great. Thank you. Uh, We're continuing a conversation this week that we started last week. And you, I know I, I think I say this every week now, but... You really need last week to be able to fully understand what we say this week. But here's the big idea. We've been in a sermon series on wisdom for like three months now. And there are multiple voices of wisdom in the Bible. And and really, we've only been learning from one of them so far. And that's Proverbs' voice or the voice of uh, lady wisdom. Uh, But last week, we started listening to another voice. And it's the voice of the teacher in Ecclesiastes, and his voice hits a little bit different than Proverbs. He says things like this, it is unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is heaven, a striving after the wind. He says things as crazy as this, but he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Happy Mother's Day. Ecclesiastes is wisdom's disruptive voice. It's King Solomon or a Solomonic-type voice uh, who has done it all and seen it all and tried it all and lived it all and has possessed it all. And he's looking back in many ways on how he has failed to live wisely and how he's failed to find true meaning in life. And he's looking back on that failed life and he's offering observations about life under the sun. And his main point is tied up in the Hebrew word that he repeats 38 times in 12 chapters. And the Hebrew word is hevel. And hevel means uh, smoke. It means vapor. And so he'll say it over and again. Hevel of hevels, says the preacher. Hevel of hevels. What does man gain from all of his toil under the sun? Life is hevel. And the Hebrew word means smoke. It means vapor. And what Solomon does, or whoever it is, he uses that metaphor throughout his book as a way to offer a critique of life, to challenge life, to make these honest but uncomfortable points about life that is short. And it makes very little difference in the grand scheme of time. 
and it's mostly out of our control. Last week, I asked you to imagine fog to make the point. We'll try something different this morning. I make coffee every morning, and the way I make it requires a kettle. And so the first thing I do is I fill the kettle with water, and I set the temperature to 205 degrees, and it takes the kettle about two minutes to heat up to that temperature. Well, towards the end of the process, like while the kettle is in between 200 degrees and 205 degrees, it makes a noise, like a, like a swishing noise. That's probably not the way to say it, but you know what I'm talking about. And, and what it does is through a few small holes in the top of the kettle, the kettle releases a vapor. It releases like a small cloud of steam. And for a moment, that vapor kind of hangs in the air, and then it's gone. And Ecclesiastes says, yeah, that's life. Life is heavy. It's vapor. It's short. Uh, a generation goes and a generation comes. And after the vapor is gone, when I'm in the kitchen making coffee, there's really no lasting impact of the vapor. It didn't change anything. The kettle looks the same. The room that the vapor was in has not changed. The vapor had no effect on me. The cup of coffee changes me, but the vapor doesn't after it's gone. It, it, there's nothing to show for it. And Ecclesiastes says, yeah, that's life too. It's heavy. It's vapor. Um, there's no lasting change. The way he says it is there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be remembrance of later things yet to be. And while the vapor was in the air, had I tried to grab it, had I tried to possess it or hold on to it, it would have just slipped through my hands. It's visible. And most things that are visible you can touch, you can like grab a hold of, but this is not one of those things. It's unpossessable, it's confusing, it's out of our control, really. And Ecclesiastes says, yeah, that's life too. It's heaven. There's a confusion in life where things are not the way they're supposed to be. They're out of control. He knows people whose lives are prolonged by their wickedness, and it shouldn't be like that. And he knows people whose lives are cut short by their righteousness, and it shouldn't be like that. And just like vapor doesn't really play by the rules, sometimes life doesn't either, and we can't, we can't control that. So 38 times... In 12 chapters, wisdom's disruptive voice says, you know the vapor that comes out of a coffee kettle, how it's temporary, it doesn't really change much, it's unpossessable, you can't control it? That's your life. That's my life. It's heaven. And nothing escapes that. He tells his own story. He says, I tried pleasure and leisure and comfort and a vacation that never ended, and it was heaven. I tried a meaningful career and work that mattered and it was like vapor. I tried wealth and honor and status. I tried legacy. I tried family and it was all hevel. In a sense, I even tried wisdom and found that to be hevel and that living wisely doesn't guarantee that life goes well. All of life, short, nothing lasts. It's out of our control. So the question we asked last week, I want to ask it again. Where is the wisdom in that? It sounds cynical. It sounds almost irreligious and faithless, but it's a wisdom book. And the book wants you to look around at your life, even the good things in your life, and wants you to get into the practice of seeing them and saying, Hevel, that's like vapor, that's like smoke. My daughter has been sitting in service the past few months. She likes um, sitting with her mom, and she likes giving me feedback on the sermons. And so <laughs> I asked her last Sunday, I was going to beat her to the conversation. I said, hey, what's something that you learned in service this morning? And she looks at me and kind of had cold eyes and like a, a serious face. And she said, Hevel. <laughs> and I said, okay, yeah, what does that word mean? And she goes, Hevel. And I said, okay, well, what does that word teach us? And she looked at me and she goes, Hevel. <laughs> and I think what she was doing is I think she was making fun of me because 
because I said that word like a hundred times last Sunday. But the joke's on her because that's the point. (laughs) That's the influence the book should have on us. Like in response to the questions of life, a lot of our answer is hevel, is vapor. Because a lot of life ultimately is hevel. This career I have, this house I have, this money, these relationships, this family, me, my own life. This, this existence that I have, it's kettle vapor. It's the steam cloud that releases from the coffee kettle. It's temporary. It, it's little lasting impact in the grand scheme of time. It's confusingly unpossessable. It's out of our control. Where's the wisdom in that? One answer we gave last week is, is it holds us accountable in response to that. It holds us accountable for defining our life by the one thing that's not Hevel, and that's God. Namely, on this side of redemptive history, building our lives in, around, and on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ, because he is not vapor. Uh, He was and is and is to come. Jesus is the first and the last. By him, all things are made, both visible and invisible. In him, all things hold together. So one wise response to wisdom's disruptive voice in a world of heaven is I am holding on to the old words of the old song, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. That's a wise response, that that I'm going to hold more tightly to Jesus who never changes. Another answer I want to give this morning, and it's the answer that Ecclesiastes actually gives for itself. If the book of Ecclesiastes is like a a stormy day, which it is, it's cloudy, it's dark, it's rain clouds, it thunders, and that's pretty much the whole book. It's sobering, it's gray, it's dark, and the clouds thunder, hevel, hevel, hevel for 12 chapters. But something happens at least five times in the book, and it's really beautiful. At the darkest moments of the book, it's as if Solomon lets some light break through. He lets the clouds part a a little bit and and some sun shines down. And he says, because there is so much hevel in life, here is how you should approach life. Here's actually the only way to approach life. That's the wisdom he offers. And I need you to know, friends, it has deeply ministered to me. It's a little too early to tell, but I, I think it's actually changing me. Listen to these passages. This is when the sunlight breaks through the clouds. Five times. Listen for the wisdom. Chapter 2, verse 24. It'll be on the screen behind me. There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him who can eat or have enjoyment... 518, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. The few days of his life that God has given him. 815, I commend joy for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him. 9, 7 through 9, go eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your hevel life. I thought that was a bit passive aggressive. (laughs) All the days of your hevel life, right? He says this, that he has given you under the sun. Then chapter 3, the passage we're in this morning and we'll be in again next week. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Did you hear the wisdom? Life comes from the hand of God, chapter 2. Few days of life that God has given, chapter 5. The life he has given you under the sun, chapter 9. 
This is God's gift to humanity, chapter three. If much of life is vapor, hevel, short, little that lasts, confusing, out of our control, and the book thunders for 12 chapters, clouds, gray, storm, hevel, 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 but every now and then the sun breaks through and wisdom's disruptive voice says, do you know what that means? Life is a gift. Life is a gift. Life comes from the hand of God. The days of life given by God, the life he has given under the sun. This is God's gift to humanity. Wisdom's disruptive voice says life is a gift from God. And so you know what the wise do? Do you know how the wise live? They receive life as a gift from God. It's the only way to live wisely in the heaven, in the vapor, to receive life as a gift. We need to do some work here and we'll spend most of our time doing this work. Would you just consider, is that how you're living? on a foundational, fundamental, what I think about when I wake up every morning kind of level. Is life a gift? And are you receiving life as a gift? It's the only way to live wisely in the heaven. Many of us approach life differently. And many of us, some of the foolishness coming out of our lives and some of the pain that we feel in life and some of the frustration that we have with life itself is because we have approached life in ways that are incompatible with the reality that much of life is heaven. I wanna name three and I want to invite you to consider if one of these is the way that you approach life most days. The first is, instead of approaching life as a gift to receive, number one, I approach life like a problem to solve. And here's how that plays out. Life is filled with problems. And all God's people said, amen. Things to fix, dangers to avoid, bills to pay, people to please, fights to resolve, kids to raise, sickness to avoid. And it's not that I think that I can actually solve all problems, I'm not that naive, but I do believe that I can strike a perfect balance between problems solved and problems avoided. And that's this sweet spot that I'm trying to live in in life, this place between um, problems solved and problems avoided. And all of my energy is going into that. I saw an article the other day, the title of the article was really ambitious, it said this, 200 incredible life hacks that make life so much easier. Isn't that a bold claim? <laughs> like, there's no way this article can live up to the hype of its title, right? A life hack, you know, this is some smart way that someone's figured out how to solve some problem. It's some problem someone has solved in a way, not just that, that, that is a solution, but it's the kind of solution that makes you feel like you beat the system or something like that, right? 200 life hacks that make life so much easier. By the way, a lot of them were really incredible. But the promise is, if you do these, life will be so much easier. And that's the appeal, right? Because who doesn't want life to be so much easier? And praise God for any wisdom that's in any of that. But for many of us, that's a, a foundational approach to life that's incompatible with the reality of life. Life is something that I'm going to, it's a challenge that I can hack. It's a problem to solve. And once I figure out the perfect balance between problems solved and problems avoided, life will be so much easier. And so what that means is when you encounter, like you inevitably do, like I inevitably do, that life isn't easy, whose fault is that? It's mine. It's yours. Um, I'm waiting for that sweet season to come and it always escapes me. So it must mean that I haven't figured it out yet. It must mean that, that I need to think better. 
It must mean that I need to try harder and I will figure out the perfect solution to these bills and these fights and these people to please and this sickness to avoid and these kids to raise. And you know what the problem is with approaching life as a problem to solve? Hevel. Life is vapor. It's short. My problem solving cannot keep up with the pace that life moves. You all know this phrase. Maybe you've even said it. If I only knew then what I know now. And what it means is it means that I learned things that I really needed to know then, but I learned them too late because the vapor came and went. And and here's the spoiler. If you spend any time with any seasoned wise people, you'll know this. You will feel that at every single stage of your life. Meaning you will look back on this season of life that you're in right now and you'll look back on it in some future season and say, I wish I would have known then what I know now, but then I ran out of time because life's just kind of like that. Now, to be clear, there's a wise way to approach problems in life. That's a lot of what Proverbs is about. Ecclesiastes is not gonna say that that's useless. It actually says living by wisdom in response to the problems of life is good. I'm not talking about that. But if that's a foundational approach to what life is and who you are in this life, and it's all about life being a problem to solve, I will only be content when I have used my efforts and when I have used wisdom to make my life problem free. And that never happens. Hevel, life is out of our control. Life's problems are bigger than us. (laughs) He says this, for in much wisdom is much vexation And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. You see what he's saying? The wiser you get, the more problems you see. Increases knowledge, increases sorrow. If you actually live well, if you actually take serious this journey to become wise, what will happen is is your eyes will sharpen towards the pain of the world and they will sharpen towards the challenges of the world and the injustice of the world. And at the same time, your eyes will grow sharper and more clear towards your own limits and ability to do anything about those problems. It's why he doesn't say he who increases in knowledge increases in problem solving and productivity. He who increases in knowledge increases what? Sorrow. With wisdom, you see more. And when you see more, you see more to be sad about. You see more to grieve. With wisdom comes much vexation. Here's the warning. If you try and approach life like a problem to solve, here's your posture in life. Your posture in life is wringing hands. It's my primary posture. We wring hands when we're anxious. We wring hands when we're afraid. And I wring my hands in response to the vapor of life because there's too many problems to solve and I'm too limited. That's my posture. My most common emotion, if life is a problem to solve, is fear. It's the thing I will feel in life most often. If life is a problem to solve, Hevel says you will fail. So we wring our hands in fear of all the problems that we haven't yet solved or all the ones that we solve, which we think might come back. And because we're a religious people, we believe in God. Our primary way of relating to God, if life is a problem to solve, is that we use him. John Tyson says it this way. He's a pastor in New York. The fundamental lie of religion is that you can use God to control the dangers of life. But if life is a problem to solve, then life is all about controlling the dangers of life. And so all God is to me is somebody that I need to use to help protect me from the problems I fear. So if we were to put this approach to life in a prayer, which we'll do with all three, it would sound like this. I wring my hands in fear, and while wringing my hands, I pray this. God, 
Life is a problem to solve. I am failing. Let me use you. Posture is wringing hands. Emotion is fear. The prayer is, God, life's a problem to solve. I'm failing. Let me use you. Here's the second approach that won't work. We don't receive life as a gift. We approach life as a competition to win. And here's how it plays out. On one side, it's I will do better than others. And that's the proud way to say it. I don't think most of us actually say it the proud way. I think most of us feel it the insecure way. And it means that I am hypersensitive to all of those who I believe are doing life better than me. Those of us who approach life as a competition to win, so few of us think we're actually winning. And so our eyes are always wandering to those around us, comparing our life to their life. And it sounds like this. You know, all my friends are married already and I'm still single. I must be losing. You know, all my peers are advancing in their career and I'm not. My, my friends' kids are really respectful and obedient and mine are great, but they're kind of like these little barbarians and I'm losing. Maybe I'm a little later in life and those around my age, they lived better than I did. Those around my age of life, they knew then what I should have known then and I feel like they're ahead of me. It's Mother's Day and for some of you moms, you'll be honored today and you'll be praised today and you'll hear things like, you're a great mom. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for all that you do. And for some of you, because life is a competition to win and all that a voice in your head will say, it's not good enough. I'm not good enough. Then you will think of someone else. You'll think of another mom, some mom with a great mom blog, someone with a super curated social media presence. She's always crushing it and she will stand in your head as this embellished picture of a perfect mom. And because you're not her, words spoken of honor to you by the people who actually know you will ring hollow in your heart because motherhood is a competition to win and you feel like you're losing. We can even do this in our relationship with God. We're never as Christian as we should be. You ever feel that? I feel that all the time. A mentor who I respect and trust, he told me recently, he said, Jamin, you know the reason most people don't lead churches at your age is because most guys in their mid-30s don't have the depth and maturity required to lead and pastor well. And I looked at him with all sincerity and I said, I know that because I'm one of them. Like, I'm most guys. There's depth lacking. There's immaturity present. And I don't say that as some sort of false humility. I say that because it's true. There is lack here. And with that comes this pressure to play catch up, to hurry up and grow mature, to hurry up and grow deeper, to hurry up and grow wise, to run faster, or at least to try and keep up. And so I can even turn relationship with Jesus, becoming like Jesus into a kind of game. I feel like I'm always playing the wrong way. You know the problem with approaching life as a competition to win? Hevel. Ecclesiastes says you're going to lose. You're going to lose. Life is short. Time keeps moving. Whatever you win will be forgotten. And like vapor from kettle, life is out of your control. The most, chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, it's the most bummer verse in all of Ecclesiastes. He says this, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Here's what he's saying. The wise lived better than the fool. They were winning at life compared to the fool. And yet I perceive that the same events happen to them all. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this is also Hevel. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. He says, I won at life. I did it better. I was wise. I did it the right way. And then I realized that life is the kind of competition that even the winners lose. 
and he hated life. Hevel. Here's the warning. If you and I try and approach life like a competition to win, our posture in the hevel, we will exist in life with wondering eyes. Always looking around. Always wondering how am I comparing to others. Am I winning? Am I behind? I need to catch up. My eyes wander over to another marriage and compare my marriage to that marriage and I'm losing. My eyes wander over to that career and compare that career to my career. My eyes wander over to that friend and compare their maturity or their beauty or their friend group to mine. My eyes wander over to that person's relationship with God. They don't struggle like I do and I must be losing. If life is a competition to win, my eyes are always wandering around in the heaven. How am I doing compared to others? And that's my primary posture. My primary emotion if life is a competition to win, is shame. Maybe if we're too proud to be honest, we won't feel shame. Like I, I don't think the scoffer, if you remember the scoffer, they hate God and hurt people. They're probably blinded by their pride and they don't feel shame. But most of us who approach life like a competition to win have this gnawing sense that we're not winning. And in response, we think there's something deficient in me. I feel shame that I'm losing as a parent. I feel shame that I'm losing as a friend or as a Christian or as a single or as a spouse. I feel shame that I'm losing at life. And we're religious people. And so God has to fit into that some way. And so what we believe about God is we believe that he agrees with our shame. We believe that he rehearses the accusations that we rehearse to ourselves. And so we'll try to appease him and try and win him. So if we were to take this approach to life and put it in a prayer, it'd sound like this. My eyes wander around in the heaven at all the others doing better than me. I feel shame and I pray, God, life is a competition to win. I'm losing. Don't be disappointed in me. If life is a competition to win, posture is wandering eyes. My emotion is shame and my prayer is, God, life is a competition to win. I'm losing. Please don't be disappointed in me. One more. We'll be brief. The last one is I approach life either as a problem to solve, a competition to win. And then third, life is a right I have earned. So I see my life through the lens of what I deserve and what I don't. And I hold life to the standard of being fair but then I define fairness as getting most of what I want, or I define fairness as getting what I want most. And Ecclesiastes says, okay, but life is heaven. It's kettle steam. Chapter four is all about how painful life is for most people. It's all about how, how um, painfully unfair life is for so many. There's real loss and injustice in the world, and because of hevel in the world, it can't stand up to our standard of fairness. And, and Ecclesiastes is not being dismissive of that. He's not saying ignore that. We learn from Proverbs and from Jesus and from Ecclesiastes that the right response to the unfairness of life is to grieve it. The right response to the pain in life is to grieve it. But the approach to life that says life is a right I have earned makes no space for that. It makes no space for life to be disappointing. It makes no space for not getting what I want. It makes no space for loss. Please hear me. And I become so obsessed with the unfairness of life, I see life through the lens of what it should be and refuse to live in what is. Life doesn't work that way. It's short, little of lasting impact. It's unpossessable. It's out of our control. And so life is a vapor, but if we believe that it's a right I've earned, we believe we, we can make that vapor bend to our will and we try to seize it and try and grab it and hold on to it and it slips through our fingers and then all we're left with are clenched fists. Here's the warning. If you try and approach life like a right you've earned, you will exist in the hevel 
with clenched fists, clenched in frustration at life and at God for all the ways it's not delivering on what you deserve. And the primary emotion that you'll feel, the posture is clenched fists, the primary emotion you'll feel is anger because anger is the response to not being in control. There's a righteous anger. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the anger that comes from raging against our lack of control. And if I approach life this way, here's my prayer. I clench fists, I feel anger, and I pray, God, life is a right I earned. I deserve better. You owe me. Do you see yourself in any of this? I I see me. I I know how to talk about all these because I've tried And I still try all of these approaches to life. There has to be a better way. If life is a problem to solve, I wring my hands in the heaven. I feel fear. And with wringing hands and a fearful heart, I pray, God, life is a problem to solve. I'm failing. Let me use you. If life is a competition to win, my eyes wander in the heaven. And I feel shame. And with wondering eyes and shame in my heart, I pray, God, life is a competition to win. I'm losing. Don't be disappointed in me. If life is a right I've earned, my fists clench in the heaven. I feel anger, and with clenched fists and an angry heart, I pray, God, life is a right I earned. I deserve better. You owe me. There has to be a better way. There has to be a better way to live this life where my hands don't ring in fear and my eyes don't wonder in shame and my fists don't clench in anger. And wisdom's disruptive voice says there is. There is a better way. Like sunlight through the clouds, it says, life is a gift. Receive it. Life is from the hand of God. God has given this life under the sun. This is God's gift to you. And so it teaches us the primary posture of the wise in the heaven. Open hands. Hands open. Not wringing hands, not wondering eyes, not clenched fists, but open hands. I am not in control. So I will receive this life, my life, with open hands. I'll receive it as a gift. And it doesn't mean that I pretend like the things that hurt don't hurt. And it doesn't mean that I pretend like the things that are wrong are right. But what undergirds and settles me in the brevity of life and what undergirds and settles me in the mystery of life and the confusion of life and the pain of life and the beauty of life is that life itself is a gift. And I'll receive it. You know what the primary emotion is? When you approach life as a gift, gratitude. Because that's how we respond to gifts, right? Moms, many of you, you'll open gifts today. You'll get something that your kids colored at school or something that your kids made at school maybe. Uh, Or you'll get flowers your husband picked up at Tom Thumb 30 minutes ago because he forgot. (laughs) Now you know my plan for the day. And you will receive that gift and you will look at whoever gave it and you'll probably feel gratitude or at least you will open your mouth and you will say thank you because that's the right response to a gift. Every single day of my heaven life is a gift from God. Every day of your life is a gift from God and every day we are breathing is cause for thanksgiving because we are living inside the gift. That's the wisdom. Jamin, what about all the wrong in life? What about the wrong done to me? What about the wrong I've done? What about the wrong in the world? Is that a gift? No, sin is not a gift. But most of the book is about what's wrong. 
Most of the book is about the clouds that thunder, hevel, 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 and injustice and pain and meaninglessness and all that. And even though most of the book is about what's wrong, it still offers as wisdom this, receive life as a gift. It's not empty optimism. It's not naive bumper sticker spirituality. It says the sky is filled with clouds. It thunders hevel for 12 chapters, and then it lets the light shine through just long enough to say, you know the only way to live? To really live, receive life as a gift. If I were to put that approach to life in a prayer, it would sound like this. I think it sounds familiar. I open my hands, and with gratitude in my heart, I pray, God, life is a gift. You are the giver. Thank you. You see how unique this prayer is compared to the others. Every other prayer is, God, I am failing, I am losing. I deserve, but in this prayer, there's no I, there's a you, because the attention's not on me, it's on God. And what kind of God is he? He's a gift-giving God. You are the giver. God, life is a gift. You are the giver. Thank you. If I were to connect it with where we've been in our wisdom series, if Proverbs tells us wisdom has a posture, it's low, it's humble, it's the image of someone kneeling on the ground. Ecclesiastes adds to that and says, wisdom's posture is also hands open receiving life as a gift and humble gratitude. Let's bring this to a close this way. Next week, we'll be back in chapter three, asking how do I approach life as a gift? It's beautiful. It's gonna tell us four things, just to give a teaser. It's gonna say, be present, see beauty, do good, and receive joy. Be present, see beauty, do good, receive joy. I tried to fit it all in this week, but I couldn't, so it'll wait till next week. But for now, would you just consider something would you consider making this prayer your own prayer? Receiving life as a gift and trying to build the discipline into your life of approaching life as a gift by committing to pray this prayer. Listen, here's what I'm assuming. Here's, here's my presupposition about this time. We're not here to be inspired. We're not here for a religious experience. We're certainly not here to consume religious goods. We're here to be changed. We're here to be conformed into the likeness of Jesus. And what God's word is confronting us on this morning is that for so many of us, our approach to life is incompatible with life, but seeing it is not enough. We have to war against it. And one of the ways that I, as somebody who often tries to make life a problem to solve or a competition to win or a right to earn, one of the ways I've personally tried to fight against that is just praying this prayer often. God, life is a gift. You are the giver. Thank you. And here's what that's looked like this week. This week I prayed that prayer with open hands after receiving an actual gift. It was, I was overwhelmed by someone's generosity and I wanted to thank God and I just opened my hands. God, life is a gift, you're the giver, thank you. I prayed it with open hands on my knees in my office after hearing hard news about a loved one with cancer. Life is a gift. I prayed it with open hands after speaking harshly to one of my children, knowing that I needed to apologize and seek forgiveness. I prayed it with open hands Friday night when I was nauseous and started running a fever. And I thought I was gonna miss church this morning. I prayed it again with open hands Friday night when the Mavs won. <laughs> Thank you, God, for that. I prayed it with open hands on Saturday when my four-year-old told me she wanted a hug even if it meant she got sick too. I prayed it with open hands this morning, feeling really terrible but really grateful because I can't believe God lets me do this. And I can't believe God lets me do this with you. 
And in all that, I'm not saying all of those circumstances in themselves are a gift. Some of them are not. But I am asking through prayer that God would remind my heart that life itself is always at all times a gift. And as long as I'm alive, I'm living in the gift. And the only way to make it in the heaven is hands open to receive, a heart filled with gratitude, and a mouth that is always ready to offer thanks to God who gives life. Would you do that? And look, that's without even mentioning the Gospels. Ecclesiastes doesn't tell us this, but John says, Christian, you have the double gift. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Paul says it too, Ephesians 2, saved by grace through faith, not from yourself. It is a gift from God. We have the double gift of life and new life. We have the double gift of creation and new creation. We have the double gift of life in the heaven and life in the new heavens and the new earth. So if you want to live the life that receives the gift and you're not sure where to start, start with Jesus. If your hands ring often over life's problems, remember the gift of your salvation, that your greatest problem has been dealt with in Jesus' death and resurrection. Open your hands. Life is a gift and know that your Savior makes all things right. If your eyes wander often because life is a competition to win, you feel shame over the ways that you're losing at life, remember the gift of salvation. Jesus won. He didn't lose. He defeated death. And then he invites you to share in his victory and his perfect life. And so now you don't have a God that agrees with your shame. You have a God who agrees with the cross. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I will not obsess over and I will not look on those who are better in their jobs or better than their marriages or better at being a mom or better at being a Christian. I will look to the one who looked on me with love while I was at my very worst. Take your wondering eyes and fix them on the author and perfecter of your faith. Open your hands. Life is a gift. Your Savior already won. If your hands clench in fists because life is a right you've earned and you feel anger for not getting what you deserve, remember this, more than you need fair, you need Jesus, who himself laid down his rights so that he might offer the life you don't deserve as a gift you could never earn. And so maybe, just maybe, your starting place would be a vision of Jesus getting what he did not deserve, that he might offer to you the gift of grace that you could never earn. And may that soften your anger and pry apart your fists. Open your hands. Life is a gift. Jesus gives grace. Would you do something with me? It's okay if you don't. But as an act of obedient response to God's word, would you pray with me? Would you open your hands out in front of you like this? And would you repeat after me? God, life is a gift. You are the giver. Thank you. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We love you. Thank you, God, for the gift of life. Thank you for the gift of life, God. And Lord, I know that for some, the idea of life being a gift right now is just really hard. Especially on this day, especially knowing some of the stories in this room, life being a gift is just hard to wrap the mind around. And for that person, God, I pray that instead of flooding their ears with answers, you would flood their heart with comfort.
Lord, draw to mind the small ways that the light has shone through even the clouds of their life, God. For all of us, Lord, would you, would we not ignore, God, would we not believe the lie that this, this morning was for someone else to hear? It was for me. It was for everyone sitting in this room, God, to consider where have I taken what is a gift and I've turned it into a problem to solve or a competition to win or a right that I have earned. Lord, would you write our hands this morning? Would you take our posture? Would you break us from the postures that are incompatible with life, that our hands would open to everything in our life, God, and we would say, God, life is a gift. You are the giver. Thank you. Lord, give me the discipline to keep praying this prayer. And maybe my brothers and sisters, maybe they land on different words, God. But I pray that what would carry them through what is a lot of vapor and steam and hevel is a confident conviction that what you have given God in this life is you've given a gift because you're good. We love you. We need you. Amen.